And so today I'm excited to begin this series called Dreamer, a journey into favor with God. And so let's do this. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. And we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read from verses 1 through 4. And so, so you know, as we go through this series, what we'll be doing is we'll be zooming in on different stages of Joseph's life that the scriptures are presenting to us. And so this is awesome because as we begin Bible study, these are one of the stories that we're going to kind of do an overview of, and we're going to try to find main themes in Joseph's life and threads so that we can trace them and track them throughout the whole biblical narrative. But in this series, we're going to be able to pause even more. And so um, I thought this would just be good support. Um, so what you're going to find or what you may have found already as you have journeyed trying to read your Bible is that the story of Joseph's life comes into the forefront here in Genesis chapter 7. And so the narrators, the writers are, 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 are being inspired by God and, um, to recount the history of their, of their existence as a people before God. And, and so we're, we're learning about Adam and Eve and then writers are writing and then we learn about Noah and, and the writers are done with Noah and they write and we learn about Abraham and there's a lot pausing there and so you get some chapters you get a lot of chapters about Abraham and Sarai and then we transition into the birth of a promise that God gave to Abraham and that's their son Isaac and so we get chapters there and when you get to 37 it's where um, well from there then you learn about Jacob then you get a lot of chapters there about Jacob and then from there then you get to this son and that's Joseph so here we are. Joseph begins here in, 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 in 37. Beginning at verse 1, we read this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Church says, Amen. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Amen. We'll stop there. And so before you're seated, I just want you to tell the title to your neighbor. I'm going to be preaching from this theme, A Story Worth Living. Amen. And you may be seated. You might be familiar with the phrase, a story worth telling. 
But a story is only worth being told if that story was actually worth being lived. Amen? So a a story worth living. And so as I said, we begin in Genesis chapter 37, and 37 transitions from a character to another character, the focus. And so from 37 on, we're going to zoom in on this person that we've just been introduced to. This young man, this young boy or this young teen, this young adult, however, I think he's a teen still. That's a teen. That's a teen. Um, Not a young adult yet. But we we zoom in on this young man named Joseph, and we're told his age. Um, The text is revealing to us um, his youthfulness, how young he is. The text is telling us also that we're we're, we're zooming in on um, a young person whose life is just about to begin. But chapter 37 doesn't just begin starting at, and hey, here's Joseph, the new star of this show. Chapter 37 begins with a transition, very important transition. It's important to know that Joseph does not fall out of the sky. He's special in the biblical story, but he's not that special that he just descends. He comes out of a mountain, and here is God's beautiful plan and dream and vision for him. Joseph is part of an ongoing story, an ongoing story that, of course, is connected to his parents, an ongoing story that is connected to his grandparents, great-grandparents. Joseph is part of a story. And so I want to actually begin there just a little bit so that then we can properly put the spotlight on Joseph. And so as we read, it doesn't begin with Joseph. It begins with his father. And there are two interesting details in the first verses that we read. It's very possible, too, that if this is the first time you're reading this story, it could possibly confuse you. Because we've read that Jacob is introduced, and he lives in the land of his father, and that land was Canaan. And then the narrator tells us this, that they're going to give us an account of Jacob's family. And then it transitions into one of his sons. And now the spotlight is on Joseph. So if you notice, verse 1 of chapter 37 says, Jacob is in the land where his father had stayed. But then when you get to verse 3, speaking of the same person, it doesn't use the same name, Jacob. It then says, Israel loved Joseph. And so if this is your first time reading, it may be possible if you say, wait a minute, is is, is is Joseph Jacob's son or is Joseph Israel's son? And so the only way for you to know whose son he belongs to is for us to know the larger part of the story. But the narrator is very specific to say, Jacob had a son of 17 years old. His name was Joseph. But Israel loved him. And so what is this? Are there two dads in this story? No. It's one man 
who lived a life that um, was shaped by adversities, personal struggles, and wrestlings. Um, Jacob's life, if you have read it, is, a, is about a man who desires, has dreams of greatness, I would say, has dreams to, of security, has, has dreams to become, yet wrestles with himself, wrestles with people, and we learn he even wrestles with God. And oftentimes, he didn't make the best choices. Oftentimes, in order for him to try to accomplish, accomplish look, a, a dream to be great, it usually was at the expense of those around him that should have, he should have loved and those that loved him. As a matter of fact, when we're introduced to, to Jacob, we learned that his mother, Rebecca, at the time of his birth, was actually pregnant with twins. And as she's giving birth to her child, as the first one is coming out, the second child actually grabs on to his brother's heel. And so we're invited to, to see this and, 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 and we're invited to think, what's up with this child? He's, he can't wait his turn. Like, let the first one come out. Do what you got to do. Clean that baby up. And okay, now look, we're ready for the next baby. But he comes out, this second child that was in the womb, comes out holding on to his brother's heel. In so much that when his parents decide what they're going to call him, they name him Jacob because of what he does at the time of his birth. I want to just show, well, you know, hold that. What does Jacob mean? Jacob literally means Heel grabber. Like, could you imagine that your parents named you based upon? <laughs> like, imagine, you know, depending what they see when you're coming out. Like, I don't know what, <laughs> what would you call your child? I'm like, alien baby. I don't know. <laughs> you know, gooey baby is your name because when you came out, you were just extra gooey and I don't <laughs> And so what a way to name a child. One of the things that we learn when, we're, when we read our Bibles is that names become very, very important. Typically for us in our culture today, we might name a child based upon someone great that existed maybe in history or even within our family. We might tend to name our child based upon what maybe a parent's name or uncle's name. And usually it's the uncle or, you know, or the family member that was a joy to the rest of the family. Usually you're not going to name your child the name of a family member who was just, you know, a, the difficult one. You know, or you name, your, you name your child after someone of the past who was great. And, and so we tend, look, we tend to name our present children based upon good history. However, when we're reading our Bibles, names were not chosen in that way. Names were actually chosen more so about the present, not the past. And they were chosen and given about the present in order to speak to the future. See, I'm naming my kid based upon some great, great, grand, 
uncle that was awesome, and I'm trying to tie my child to some past beautiful history. However, in the biblical context, names are being spoken to speak towards someone's future. And so in Jacob's birthing, he comes out holding the heel of his brother. But it's with this understanding, he's trying to take by force the place that belongs to his brother. So his parents actually name him with bad connotation. It's about someone who's trying to take the position of someone else. He's a heel grabber. This is not an expression that we use today. But it would be equivalent to calling someone a a usurper. Ooh, you're trying to take by force and by might a position or a place that does not belong to you. And this is what they name him because of him holding on to his brother's heel. And what ends up happening, the name given to him in the present literally shapes his future. When you're reading the story and the narrative of Jacob, you realize that this would not be his last heel-grabbing experience or episode with his brother. With his brother being the firstborn within the tradition and the culture of these people, it's a different world. It's a different time. We 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 don't live in this world. We don't live in this time. But there was this biblical principle of the birthright, of an inheritance that belonged to the firstborn son. The firstborn son had lots of responsibility. He wasn't special in the sense of he's special because he's firstborn and he's cute and all that. But he is special because he's the firstborn because he's going to assume the greatest responsibility for his brothers and his mother and his sisters especially when his father passes. The firstborn son, once the father passes, becomes like the father to all of the family. That firstborn son then becomes responsible to provide security, wealth, and wholeness. And so therefore, if the firstborn son has greatest responsibility to care for everyone left behind when father passes... It is only right, it is his right, and it's his father's right to leave an inheritance and a blessing to him in order to secure that family. And so as a father, you want to leave your biggest inheritance, you want to leave your greatest wealth, you want to leave your greatest possession, and you want to give him a blessing from father to son, I bless you. Not just in word, but I bless you in word and I bless you with physical resources because you are going to be the one that is going to provide for our family when I go. It makes sense in this time and culture. There's no government programs for this family to sign up. There's no 401k when people start to retire to bring security. That doesn't exist. And so a birthright was a security for the entire family. And so who is the firstborn in this family? It's not Jacob. It's his eldest brother, Esau. And so both brothers are growing up in age. Jacob knows that Esau is going to get a blessing. There's a birthright. There's an inheritance that belongs to him. And Jacob knows as the younger brother that that doesn't belong to him. It doesn't mean that he won't have anything. It doesn't mean that his father won't even give him a blessing. It doesn't mean that his father won't, will leave him with zero. 
But it does mean that Esau will have more because he will have the greater responsibility. And so as they're growing up, the Bible tells us that Jacob used to be at home with his mother and chill out at tents. He was in many ways a mama's boy. And Esau, his eldest brother, was a daddy's boy. Their dad was Isaac, and Esau was a hunter, and he was an outdoorsman, and, you know, jumping over, I don't know, rocks, cliffs, chasing little serpents out in the field. He was a hunter, catching stuff, and his father loved because he would go out, and he would hunt, and bring in stuff, and then they could eat. These are good skills for the firstborn son. He's also not lazy. He can go out, and if he had to, he could kill something and bring it home and preserve the whole family. So one day, Esau's out in the field, and he comes back, and he's famished, he's tired, and he's starving. Maybe he didn't catch nothing good that day, and Jacob's home, chilling in the tent, who's making some nice beans with his mother, <laughs> making some soup or something. Esau's so, so famished, he's like, give me, give me something to eat, brother. I'm going to die. And Jacob says, you're going to die? Oh, my God, yes, look at you. You are. <laughs> I'm adding into this story. So I'm going to invite you during this Bible study throughout the year, read your text, okay? But, but Jacob tells him, you want some of this? Sure, just sell me your birthright. And Esau says, well, you know what? If I'm dead, then what good is it? Sure. And he surrenders a right that would be due to him, but a right that comes with responsibility for a bowl of beans. And Jacob's like, got him. And so in many ways, this is where Jacob is taking advantage of an opportunity of a weak moment in his brother's life. And here comes another moment where he grabs his heel, tries to move into position that belongs to his brother, but taking advantage of his brother's weakness and frailty in that moment, he, look, he steps in front of his brother and takes his birthright. Life would continue to go on. Their father Isaac would just continue to grow in love with Esau. The mother would continue to grow in love with Jacob. And it comes to a point where Isaac is of old age, and he's about to pass, and the family knows this. And so at this point in this culture, at the point of death of the father, he has to bring in his children. He has to bring in specifically his sons in order to look, to pronounce the blessing and leave the inheritance. Their mother, Rebecca, knows this, and she speaks to Jacob, and she says, hey, the time is going to come when, you know, your father's going to bless, and he's going to leave everything to Esau. She says, I, why don't you go in, and um, why don't you dress? Look at this. Why don't you dress like your brother? The Bible gives us this detail about Esau that he was, he was a hairy man, I guess hairy arms, I don't know, whatever. You know, some of us know what that's like, right? Yeah, and, and, and Jacob wasn't, and so... His mother devises this plan because Isaac is so old, and it tells us that he's, 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 he's already blind. He's, he's, he's lost his eyesight. And the mother, Rebecca, devises a plan, look, for her younger son, who she loves, to present himself like Esau by dressing himself up with certain textures and furs 
so that if his father touches him, he could think that he's speaking to the eldest son, Esau. I mean, and what is, Esau, what is Jacob? He said, hey, it sounds great. The character of Jacob doesn't say, oh, you know what, mom, maybe this isn't the best thing to do. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is something that belongs to my brother, doesn't belong to me. This is, this is a place that is designated for my brother. This doesn't belong to me. But rather than doing that, he agrees to move forward with the plan of Rebecca. And then they go in and they trick, their, they trick Isaac into believing that he is Esau while Esau is out hunting. And then Jacob, once again, takes the heel of his brother and his father releases the blessing and gives the inheritance to Jacob. So now, in one sense, we're like, okay, there, Jacob's got everything that he wanted to. From the beginning, he came out of the womb. He wanted to be born alongside him or in front of him. He grabbed his heel and he, he did that. And he, he was able to, in his brother's moment of weakness, he was able to use his trickery and he was able to steal a birthright and now him and his mother together work and now they were able look to steal this firstborn's blessing and so in many ways what should Jacob do celebrate right it's time time you you got what you wanted but the way the story unfolds we we, we see the reality we see the reality of getting what you want in ways like this don't turn out how we expect it. As a matter of fact, he has to run. He has to run and flee from his father's house. His mother says, oh, no, once Esau finds out, he's going to kill you. And so now Jacob goes on this run. It's like, wait, you didn't think that was going to happen before you devised the plan? It's like reality check, right? After bad decisions are made. Here's something that we need to learn when we're reading our Bibles. The, the Bible falls into this category called wisdom literature. It's wisdom literature. The Jewish people that preserved the text that we're able to read today would look back and recount history, their history, and their journey as human beings alongside the God that revealed himself to them. And as they read their texts and they read these stories, it was meant to be wisdom literature for them. It was meant for them to look, read these stories, and find themselves, not because they were the superheroes of the story, but to see themselves as humanity before this gracious and mighty and powerful God. And as they were reading the text, they were supposed to see and find the wisdom of what their ancestors did right before God or what their ancestors did wrong before God. This is the beautiful thing that you and I have the opportunity to do even now. When we read our Bibles, they're inviting us to look at it and sit with it and look at the stories and find the wisdom. Now, if we look at the story that we're talking about today, how many of us have done the very same thing? We grab heels to get things that we want 
And the reality is after we accumulate a lot of the stuff that we grabbed, we realize that we cannot live in the peace of those things. It's like after the fact, we realize like, oh, now I got to run. It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You so blind, look, so blinded, look, by dreams sometimes, so blinded by vision sometimes. Look, blinded to become sometimes it blinds us to the fact that the people that we are stepping over or the people that we are conniving or the lies that we're telling just so that we can have. But when you do it that way, what tends to happen is then you got to run from it all. I know what it is. I know what it is. So what happens with Jacob? He has to run. And now he has to look. He has to leave the home that he loved. He has to leave the comfort and love from his mother. He has to leave the comfort and love from his father. Yeah, he tricked Esau multiple times, but maybe deep down inside, I don't know, maybe there was some kind of love there. But look, his dream to become at times caused him to hurt people that he possibly loved. And so what is this text inviting us to do? It's inviting us to pause, take a step back, and look at our lives. I thought it was appropriate that we named the series Dreamer. Not just because of Joseph, but look, Jacob too had dreams. His mother had a dream for him because she loved him so much. But here's the thing. What good is the dream? What good is it to have a dream? If the motive and the intention is only, in the end, just to satisfy self, and it's at the expense of others. And so, you know, we're we're still in January, still in January, the year's still fresh. I hope you're still excited in some kind of way. I'm telling myself, it's still January. I got to be excited. And I know I was supposed to have a word for the year. My wife told me, she said, so what's your word for the year? I was like, I scrambled. I'm like, I didn't have one. Oh my gosh, I don't even have a word for the year. Like, don't worry, it's not like a biblical thing, must have a word for the year, but you know, just a lot of church people and culture, we do that. It's like, oh my God, I didn't even have, I didn't have time to think for a word for a year, and I'm trying to scramble here. I'm sure many of us may have a word for the year. Maybe you wrote something down. Maybe you have a vision for 2023. Maybe you have a goal for 2023. Maybe you have a dream. Maybe that is to read the Bible and be committed to that. Maybe your dream is I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get my family plugged in and I'm going to start praying more and I'm going to start leaning into God more and I'm going to take my this relationship and this walk with God, sorry, it's good, those are good things, or I'm going to exercise, or I'm going to work on this thing. The most important thing, more than actually having the dream, is to know the motivation of the dream. Because some of us just wrote things down because it's the time of the year where you're supposed to. So there's dreams with Jacob. We're going to see that there are dreams with Joseph. But he has to run, and he, there's this long journey in, with Jacob where he's just on the run. He's running from his brother, and he ends up having this encounter with God where God intervenes in his life. And, and, and there's something beautiful because as we're reading, we're supposed to see, this guy's a rat, this, this guy's a real rat, man. That's what we're supposed to see. Like, 
But he has this moment, this rat has a moment with God where he's on the run. Look, he's on the run. His mother tells him, go, go, run, hide, flee to your, to your uncle Laban's house. Get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. And look, after, look, the first half of, of his life just lying and scheming and taking advantage of his family members, as he's on the run, you look at this guy and say, this guy's a rat. He doesn't deserve anything. And then all of a sudden, he's on the run. He's out in this desert place, and he doesn't have a place to lay his head. Takes a rock, uses it as, as a pillow, and he goes to sleep. And there, God intervenes. I remember reading, with a rat? <laughs> with a guy like him? But this is wisdom literature. We're supposed to be looking in and saying, this guy's so undeserving, I would hope I don't have a brother like him. And then all of a sudden, as we're reading, God gives him a vision in a dream. And God, look, God reveals himself to the rat and tells this rat, I have great plan for you. And so as wisdom literature, we're supposed to look and say, and see the grace of God over people and even ourselves when we look at us and look at others and say, no, they're too far gone and they're too undeserving. And God looks and reveals to him and then tells him, look, that he, God, was doing something with his parents. And there was, look, a plan and a dream and a vision that God had over his father and over his grandfather, and he wants to accomplish that even through Joseph's life. Some of us might look in the story and we might feel like, man, I know a Jacob. Some of us might look at that story and you might, you might be the Jacob, where most of your life has just been maybe something that we're not proud of, knowing we're on the run from God, knowing we cheated a few people. But God's text wants to invite us into his character and for us to know this, that even over a person of such, even if you are that person of such, God still has a plan with you. And that's supposed to bring reassurance. And I pray that it does. Because none of us are all in the same place and only we ourselves truly know where our mind is at, where our heart is at, where our motives have been. And so this is a beautiful time in the passage because we know Jacob is so undeserving, but here comes God inviting him into a blessing that began with his grandfather Abraham. And when Jacob wakes up from the dream, he, he realizes, he changes the name of the place that he's in, and he says, this none other is the house of God. He saw a vision of the heavens opening, and there was this staircase or this ladder, and he saw angels coming up and down, and God stood on it, and then God speaks to him. And then he realizes this invitation from God to still want part in his life. So you might be on the run right now. You might have just grabbed someone's heel, but God wants part in your life even now. Right now, maybe you, you know, you, 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 you told yourself, I got to get to church in the new year, and you're maybe feeling really bad about everything that just transpired over the last couple of months for you. 
But I want to reassure you that God, in many ways, has already been waiting for you. He's already been waiting for you. And so God intervenes and reveals himself to Jacob. And so Jacob then has to continue and he has to run because he's still got to get away from Esau. So he runs to his uncle's house and the story just continues that now he eventually gets cheated by his uncle as he was scheming and grabbing heels. Then his uncle grabs his heel and got him back and... Somebody might, you know, say, hey, payback, man. Someone said, karma is really bad, man. Many ways, reaping just consequences and same way how he schemed and his uncle schemed him. I mean, schemers in the family, scheming each other. No one knows what this is about, right? Like, and eventually he's going to have this moment where he's, going to cross paths with his brother Esau, and he's terrified. At this point, he's married. He has two wives. He has children. He has, you know, he's, he's got some stuff accumulated in terms of wealth and possession, and look, he still has to face his brother. It comes a point in his life where he still has, look, he has to face his past, and he's terrified, and he sends gifts ahead, and he puts his family, and then after that, he comes, and he falls at his brother's feet, like, begging for mercy. And then the Bible tells us this, that Esau graces him with forgiveness. And he's, look, he's able to experience, it's a picture, too, for us to step back and, well, see it as wisdom, the grace that God is extending towards him, but even through the people that he hurt. There are moments where you will have this moment where God opens the heavens for you and you experience grace there with him. But then there are moments where you see God through the grace that he's giving you with other people. Like when a real person forgives you or is graceful after you know maybe you're undeserving. It's a beautiful thing to experience, look, peace, forgiveness, and grace from God, but through others. It's very profound. But just before that moment, he wrestled with God. He gets alone. He, the guy's like has a night where he's just sweating, and he encounters, the Bible tells us, this man, and he starts to wrestle with this being. And we learn later on that he's not just wrestling with some random dude who was out there with him, but he actually wrestles with God and in that wrestling, God changes his name. Now, what is his name? His name is Jacob. What does that mean? He's a heel grabber. He's someone who just, you know, takes by force what belongs to others. He connives and steals to, but in the wrestling, he comes out, and his name is changed, and we learn that he wrestles with God, and so, therefore, God changes his name from Jacob, the heel grabber, rat, to Israel. I want you to put those two names up just so we can see. He wrestles with this angel in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 26. You can go back just for a reference. But Jacob means heel grabber or supplanter. What's that? It's is one who wrongly, again, 
or illegally seizes and holds a place of another, someone who we could call a usurper. And then God does something and changes his name to Israel. What does Israel mean? Israel means God prevails. So he goes from the heel grabber to God prevails. And God tells him that not once in Genesis 25 when he wrestles with him, but even after that in Genesis chapter 35, two chapters before 37 where we began. Now after that, he's made peace with his brother Esau. His family has continued to grow. At this point, he has children. He not only has two wives who have children, but he has their servants who became their wives, and they produce children for him. And he's older in age, and he's a little bit more wiser. And at Genesis 35, God wants to remind him that he did change his name and that the work and the dream that God has for him is still over his life. And so let's just read Genesis 35 at verse 10. This is God reminding him that he did change his name. And it says this, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel, verse 11. And God said to him, look, I am God Almighty. And look what he tells him. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be born among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, that's his father and his grandfather, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And God, look, God is speaking, look, as his father over his life and changing his name and giving him, look, he's not giving him a name about his past. Even God has given him his name about a present and a future. He was Jacob when his parents named him, but now he is Israel as God has named him. And God is really trying to change the trajectory of his life, but look what it's revealing. It's revealing that what God is doing with Jacob is part of what he was already doing with his father and his grandfather. So what does that mean? It means that Jacob is part of a larger history. And what is that history? It's not that Isaac was the greatest man that ever lived. It doesn't mean that Abraham was the greatest man that ever lived. But what it means is this, is that God has been faithful through his family generations. And look, God has been at work even before he came into the picture. And so he's born stealing, he's born grabbing, but he's coming into a history of God who's been paying attention. That's profound. Why is that profound? Because you and I, even today, we tend to look at our lives like this. When I was born, when I was four, when I was six, when I was seven. Oh, and I remember when I was 11 and I did that 
you know, my goodness, I can't tell no. And then I turned 13, and that's when it got really wild. And then at 15, something like happened in my life. And so we tend to just look at our life. And then when we start, you know, maybe someone exposed you to the faith. Maybe your parents were telling you about God. Maybe your grandmother brought you to church, someone. And now you're like, okay, I look at my life, and you see the heel grabbing. You see the line. You see things that you're ashamed of, and then also now you're being introduced to God. You're like, okay, God, there you are, and it's like you found God, and you think that all of a sudden that's when God came into existence, and we don't realize that even before we were born, that God's been working in history beyond our conception. That should be reassuring, because many of us, are prayers, our, our prayers are this, God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to show up. Where, many of our prayers are this, God, where were you when I was five? Where were you when I was seven? And we don't realize that the God that we're asking to reveal himself has always been there. Has always been there. And he's been dealing with your father's troubles. He's been dealing with your mother's craziness. He's been dealing with your grandfather's stupidity. He's been dealing with your great-grandmother who had faith. But he's been dealing with her father who had no faith. And maybe you in your life right now, you're like, God, when you're going to come? And we don't realize that we are in a greater history than ourselves. And if you can trace back and look at the wisdom, God has been there the whole time. And if he's been there the whole time with them, I promise you, he is there with you right now. You could be a rat right now, and he's still there. You could be trying to believe right now, maybe not feeling him, but we are there. And he's there. As I was preparing this, I said, man, that could really help someone. That really helps me to know while I'm, I'm in my word and it's like, God, I need you right here. Please let me feel you. Please speak to me. I have, a, I have a, a year plan to read the Bible and hopefully hear something from you. I promise I'm going to prayer service so I could. So it's, it's almost as if we're straining so God can come into existence. And then looking at this text, the wisdom from the text, because you know what? Jacob's going to wake up in his own life. His son Joseph is going to wake up in his own life. And each person waking up in their own life is just striving for God to come into reality. And many of us have to have faith for him to become real. But here's the truth about God. Whether you believe or don't have faith, he is real. It's just like we're all just, we just need a revelation of the God that's already there. So where are you? Where are we in our life right now? May we have the revelation that God has already been there. So we're all part of a larger history. And yes, if we look at the history of our parents, some good stories, some bad stories, But if we're talking about history, then we also have to consider God in there. Yeah, there's a real human history that we're a part of. Jacob is part of the history of Isaac and Abraham. And he might know some great stories about his grandparents and his father. He might know some shameful ones about them. But what's key that he learns and he knows is that God has been there and constant. This is why God says to him, I'm changing your name from what your parents named you. I am God Almighty. You got here, Jacob, because of the union of your parents 
but I've been there before them. So may that be reassuring to all of us that we're all part of a larger history. Yeah, real history of our parents and our family, of our generations, but we're all part of a larger history that God has been involved. And that, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. God has been there. And so what happens? When we get to 37, it, it, it transitions from Jacob, and now it's going to focus on Joseph. And I told you, if, right, if you just opened to 37 and you were reading, one minute it says, and Jacob was living here where his parents were in the land of Canaan, and Jacob had a son named Joseph, and he's 17, and then all of a sudden we read, and Israel loved Joseph. And the narrator makes a distinction. Now, we know that it's not two different people, but it's one person. But the narrator is wanting us to see this was the man Jacob, but now he is, look, he is now Israel, which means that God prevails. But what could that signify being named God prevails? It's, it's almost as if God, when he changed his name to Israel, God is declaring that he, God, is going to prevail through his life. And look, his plan, the dream that he showed to Jacob while he was on the run, that that God is going to prevail through him. And so now we, we get introduced to Joseph, and he, look, he does have a father. He has a real birth father who, yes, his father has a history as Jacob, but his father also has a new opportunity and a new beginning as a man who God will prevail in his life. And this is, look, so this is the history that Joseph is a part of too. So now we're introduced to Joseph, and he's at the age of 17 when we get introduced to him. And what does the text tell us about the relationship, the relationship between Israel and his son Joseph. Now, it's important to know that Israel at this time, Jacob, right, he has 12 sons. He has children from his first wife, Leah. He has children from the wife of his dreams, Rachel. He has children from their maidservants because then they became his wives. Yeah, he's got a lot of children. <laughs> it's a lot of expenses. He was probably like, thank God I stole my brother's birthright. I've got to take care of all these kids. <laughs> but beyond that, God then blessed, has blessed Israel. He matured up, older in his age. But it says this in verse 3 that we read. It said, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born to him in his old age. And he made him, he gives him this gift. It says, in the New International Version, you're going to read an ornate robe. Does anyone what ornate means? Sure, could be. It, it, it means that it's made of an intricate either shape or it's decorated with possibly complex patterns. Depending on your translation, if you read NIV, we read ornate. 
If you read King James, you're going to see a robe of what? Many, many colors. And so this, these were our translators making efforts to try to capture the uniqueness or the distinction of this gift of his father to him. In the Hebrew, when we read that word there, it doesn't necessarily say colorful. It doesn't necessarily say ornate. It really just means this long sleeve tunic. However, the context of that is that it's unique. And according to Jewish, Jewish tradition and their stories passed on, that this thing was woven together out of fine wool and there were intricate decorated pieces of wool which could have led it to be distinguished by its color. And so therefore, to read in your Bibles a translation that says a robe of many colors, that is fine. To read an ornate robe is decorated, that is fine. The point is what's important, that it definitely was a gift and a robe that stood out and that it was special from his father. And his father gave it to him to look, to demonstrate his love. Now, this is the things we don't do in our culture today. This is like you going around, you got, I don't know, five kids, and you're like, this one's my favorite, everyone. And you're introducing every kid. It's like, here's Johnny, here's Sam, here's Joe, here's, I don't know, Jesus, here's John, but... Then you tell everybody, Jesus is not your favorite, Joe is. <laughs> like, these are just things that you don't tell. Can I tell y'all a story I just remembered? This was so funny. There's someone in the church, a mother, and I needed her son's number. And when I, she went to share the contact with me, it said, my favorite child. I was like, oh my goodness. There's other children involved in this family like this and I was just like oh my gosh <laughs> did I just learn like that's the favorite and then I later on it somehow came up I didn't even know what to say to this mom I just oh, I'm not starting any problems here I don't know if she's just going around in her house saying my favorite come here then I later found out that all her children are saved in her phone as my favorite child that's <laughs> because we know you don't do that But Jacob does. He does. He, he does this. And he gives, he gives him something. He's not whispering my favorite in his ear. He's, 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 he's publicizing this, this love for him. To the point that we read in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him, they hated him. And they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now, what's really cool, I'm going to, so the father gives him a gift, right? Well, I think it was two years ago. Two years ago, um, I received a gift. Can you, and I brought it to, just to show you. This is pretty cool. This is so cool. I received a gift. This is appropriate because it's still a little cold in here. But I received the gift a couple of years ago from my family. I saw this jacket online, and I fell in love with it. 
And this jacket comes from a Christian um, apparel company called 316. Hopefully, I get some money for this. For, you know, but, <laughs> and they make great you know, clothing. And I saw this, and what really stood out to me was, I don't know, depending on the lighting, this thing like, I'm like a hologram. I don't know. Do I look like I'm trans- transfiguring? I don't know. There's a certain point where I look like I'm just glowing. But anyway, the point being is more than just the reflection of the jacket, what I fell in love with was, was, was the back of the jacket. Hey, yeah. What a coincidence. <laughs> Look how God works. How ironic. Um, but I fell in love with this jacket because the minute I saw it, I then saw the creativity of it. I'm like, ah, dreamer, that's Joseph. So literally on the sleeve, it says, here comes the dreamer. Um, and it has it, Genesis chapters 37 to 50. And the creativity stood out to me because they chose this pattern of reflection um, that the colors then represent what we read in scripture where his father gave him this special tunic, this robe of many colors or this embroidered garment. And also because of how much of this church has always been about a vision given to us and about how in many ways we had to believe the dream that God gave us. And so, yeah, I just thought it would be cool. And then when Joseph came into my mind to do a series on him, I said, dreamer, the jacket. And so there we go. (laughs) I feel like I could preach with it for a little bit. So let's do that just a little bit. Um, And so his father gives him and he dresses him with something to stand out. And as a result of it, this added grace from his father, this added gifting towards his, uh, from his father creates this hate. And not only is he walking around with this beautiful jacket that his dad, I could imagine, can you imagine your brothers? Can you imagine the brothers like, look at this fool. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so we read that he's 17 Now, he is the 11th son. If you start counting all the sons, he's the 11th son. He has a younger brother named Benjamin. But his father loves him. He's younger than his brothers. His brother's a little bit older. His brothers work in the field. They tend flock. And so he's probably the little brother who's chasing behind the older brothers. And, you know, depending your age as an older brother, it's like, it just that kind of annoys you. And so it's very possible that his brothers could already be annoyed at him. And now he's got this beautiful robe that's highlighting his father's love for him beyond them. And on top of that, we read in the text that he was also very vocal to let his father know when his brothers, you could say, were up to no good. And so now his brothers are also going to see him. Like, man, we heard stories about dad being a rat. Now our little brother, he's a snitch. (laughs) It's like, they got a snitch in the family. This is terrible. And so his brothers are also building up this animosity and a jealousy is being created because his father's dressed him differently and he's not afraid to communicate the truth of their actions to his father. But on top of him having this decorated 
dress and this love from his father. Verse 5, then things get turned up. In verse 5, it says this, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And so now hate is building because now he begins to have dreams. Look, and he said to them, let's just read it. He says, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. If you are one of the brothers, I'll be like, what? Repeat that? We did what? Well, look at this. His brothers respond in verse 8. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Now, you also, we have to consider, right, the cultural setting. He's the 11th son out of 12. And if, we're, if we understand this theme of inheritances and birthrights, there's a son way at the top who's going to get an inheritance and has, has, has due rights as the firstborn. And, 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 and Israel, when he dies, is supposed to give a lot of that to that firstborn son. And whatever he has left, look, is going to go to the second son. And if Israel considers all his boys, it's going to get really, really tied. And so when you get down to Joseph number 11 and Benjamin number 12... There's dust of a blessing left for these two. And you got these brothers saying, you, do you think you're going to rule over us? That doesn't even work in terms of how this family functions. We know where inheritance goes. We know where birthright goes. We also understand the responsibility and the rulership of how this for Joseph to rule, it would mean that all of those brothers have to die before he could get into that place of ruling. So he's far down on the list. And so the brothers, in many ways, justifiably, are just telling him, you really think you're going to rule? Like, we have to be dead for you to rule. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him, look, all the more because of the dream and what he had said. A lot of commentators might even say Joseph was just talking too much. He just, 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 whether he's talking too much or he's just very honest, um, his honesty is bringing more hate or his talking is bringing hate. But it doesn't end there. Verse 9 tells us this. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. He said, hold on, guys, guess what? <laughs> Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? 
Verse 11 says this, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So his father rebukes him. He knows the brothers are jealous and just hating him more. I don't know if Israel at this time is realizing, man, maybe give him that coat in front of his brothers was not a good thing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm adding it to the text. But he rebukes him in front of the brothers, very possible to calm the hatred down. Maybe it's after hearing that the sun and moon that represent him and, you know, his wife bowing down to Joseph. Maybe he's like, that's a little bit too much. You know, you got that coat, but calm down, homie. And (laughs) however, while the brothers are hating him more, it says that he kept the matter in mind. Because this is what Israel understood was true. Joseph didn't write down a list of goals for 2023 BC (laughs) and say, in 2023, I desire to rule over my brothers. I desire for my brothers to bow down. And I think in 2023, it would be awesome if my parents bow down to me. His father, though the dream could make someone feel like, hey, what's up? Slow down. His father realized this truth. Joseph was not making up goals and resolutions for his future. He was actually being given visions for his future. And so the father keeps it in mind. So a lot of preachers, and probably me in the past, um, I probably right now would take this and see that Joseph had these dreams and he declared them. And probably in the past, I would be tell you, you need a dream. You need to get yourself a dream. I mean, it's 2023, so you know, it probably you know, it'd be so easy to just start shouting, you need a dream, you need a vision for 2023. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is not revealing. It's wisdom literature, so we're going to just... The text is not saying for you to go and have a dream, have a vision, right? And I'm not saying that that's wrong in itself, but what this text is revealing is this. More than having a dream for yourself, it's important that our eyes open up to see the dream that God has for us. Look, look, look. They're hating Joseph not because of his New Year resolution. They're hating Joseph because he is saying what he's seen. And he's not making up the dream. He's he's coming into a revelation by the grace of God to have one. So even though it's 2023 and I'm your pastor and I do believe in goals, resolutions, and things to work on, more than me encouraging you this year for you to get a dream, to have a dream, to get a vision, my encouragement is that you would See the dream that God has been working and weaving throughout history. That would be my prayer. That you would, as you seek God, that you'll, be, you'll, you'll soon come into a revelation of the dream that God has. That God has. As wisdom literature, we're supposed to look at this and see, wow. It wasn't. Joseph's dream. It was God's dream for Joseph. And look, he needed to see it. 
He needed to see it. Not even for him to work it. For him to see it wasn't even for him to work it, but it was to see it so that, look, he could embrace having to live it. Because most of us think like, oh, we're talking about Joseph. The, the, the subtitle of the series is A Journey into Favor with God. And usually you're like, oh, and, 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 and most of us preachers will grab Joseph's life and start reading all just the passages about when he's got favor here and he's got favor from his dad and then he's got favor from Potiphar and then he's got favor in the prison and then he's got favor with Pharaoh. And this is when us preachers will say, somebody praise God, favor ain't fair. Sure, there's some truth to that, but before favor's not fair and people are going to be hating on you like they hated on Joseph because he got favor of his life. Here, more than favor, look about more than favor not being fair, the reality is favor's not fun. Favor's not necessarily fun. And so Joseph has to be able to see the dream, not so that he could make plans to achieve it, but he's got to be able to see it so he can embrace having to live it because the favor is not going to be fun. This church started with a vision, you could say a dream, and To this day, I thank God that it wasn't my dream. I thank God that it wasn't Pastor Tanya's dream. It wasn't Pastor Mike Winsorize. It wasn't Pastor Daniel. It wasn't our dream. It wasn't our vision. I just thank God that he graced us to see it. And the reason why we had to see the vision and what it would become is because there was going to be a reality for us to live it. And while throughout the history of our lives here and doing this ministry, we're able to look back and say, wow, favor there, favor there, favor there. We literally quit our jobs with two weeks notice, got on airplanes and vehicles, came over here with $1,000 in our pockets, didn't even have a driver's license, and we're supposed to start a church that's reaching thousands, no job transfers lined up. All because what? We saw a vision. It wasn't our dream or our vision to to have It was a vision and a dream that we would have to live. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Yo te quiero servir, Padre, por favor, Padre. Te quiero servir. Ay, Padre, Dios mío. Eres tan bueno, Padre. Yes, Lord, you could. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. God, may we open our eyes to see your dream. May we see your dream, Lord. May we see your dream so it could give us faith to live it, Lord. Ah, oh, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So I thank God so much for us being able to see it. There was a little, a literal point in our story where God revealed to Pastor Tanya that the dream to open a church was here. And God spoke to her and she heard it. And then she asked our daughter, Tanya Marie, she said, can you just be a witness to the dream that God just showed me? And can you help me pray so that me, Ezekiel, could see it and hear it when God wanted to reveal it? And for months, Pastor Tanya and Tanya Marie began praying, look, that I would be able to see the dream. Months went by and God blessed us with an opportunity to come to Florida and just take a vacation and a break. And I remember being so excited. We were working so hard with the youth ministry. And I remember feeling a relief just to be able to get away and have time with my wife and relax and breathe. And I remember getting, walking down the, you know, the, the path of the airplane. I had to grab my, my, um, my carry-on with me. We're walking down. I remember I was in front of Pastor Tanya and we're walking down. And the minute my foot stepped off that jetway, that little tunnel that connects, connects your plane to the airport, the minute my foot stepped off the, jet, off the airplane onto the jetway, God spoke to me. He said, the vision is here. For two, three days, I wrestled with, how am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to tell my wife? Two or three nights later, I tell my wife, I said, love, I have to tell you something. And crying, I told her, God spoke to me. I heard, I saw the vision is here. And she looked at me and said, I'm so glad you heard. I said, God told me, and for months, I've been praying that you would be able to hear and see where the vision was at. So what has kept us throughout all these years? Because some of you might be like, great, I just got to get a vision from God. Favor's not fair. Favor's not fun. We saw the favor of God through every season and every step. But it was difficult. It was hard. There was tears. There were ups. There were downs, moments to trust. And you know what kept us? Man, I thank God the vision and dream wasn't ours. 
Because if it was mine, if it was us creating some cool dream, we would have gave up a long time ago. But because it wasn't ours, we always had as an anchor that it was his. And so what's important about a dream? The most important thing about a dream and a vision is one, it's not yours, but it's his. That is his. And if you're in life somewhere right now and you just feel like, well, I don't feel I have direction, I don't feel, and maybe you're, you see other people's lives that inspire you to, maybe that's what I should dream of, maybe that's what I should have a vision of. I just want you just to just pause and just say, God, help me to see. Help my, help my ears to hear and my eyes to see the dream and the vision that you have for me. And listen, once you can see and hear it, that's going to be your encouragement and your strength to then live it out. And so I will also say this, just because you haven't seen it and just maybe because you haven't envisioned or hasn't come into revelation, there is a dream over your head. There's a dream over your head. There's, there's a God-given vision over you. And so I just pray in God's timing as we pursue him. In many ways, you could ask, what was Joseph doing to get this dream? What was Joseph doing to have a vision? He definitely wasn't planning for it. But what we get from the tax, a lot of people called him a tattletale. I said, I think from the text, it's just showing he was honest with his dad. He was honest just to speak when he was having dreams. More than a little snitch, I see just a person of honesty. And look, a person of honesty that his father loved him. So what's the wisdom of that? What is the wisdom literature when we step back? We're children of God. There's this honesty that we need to just have with God. And maybe that's the key. Maybe that's some of the door for us to finally see the dream and the vision. So I pray this year, as you're in this year, yes, have your vision, have your dreams. But I pray that we will come into a revelation of the dream and vision God has for us. So the same way how we're all part of a larger history, we're all part of a bigger dream. How does this chapter kind of come to an end? Well, his brothers are out, and his dad says, hey, go check on your brothers again. And so when, they, when he goes to where his brothers are supposed to be, he sees some man, and this man says, oh, your brothers are not here. They went over there. So here comes Joseph, dressed in his coat this time. And when they see him, they say, look, here comes the dreamer. That's literally what they say. Here comes the dreamer. You know what his brothers decide to do? They say, let's kill him. Let's, let's kill him and then throw him in this cistern or this pit. It's basically, it's just a, a, a water well. That, it'd be something as a water well, but there was no water in it. So his brothers devised, we're going to kill him and then throw his body in there. The older brother Reuben says, no, let's not, don't, don't kill him. We don't know why, 
But we do get that Ruben's plan was don't, he's like, don't kill him, you know, just throw him in there, leave him there for a little bit, you know, maybe teach him a lesson, I don't know. But he didn't want the brothers to kill him. And the Bible tells us this because Reuben was going to come back and, and rescue him. And so it could very well be that Reuben knew the love of how deep his father loved him and knew that more than hurting Joseph in that way, it would be hurting their father. And so he made a plan that he was going to come back. Then the text says that as the brothers are there, just leaving him in there. It says they're sitting down having a meal. They're having a meal while they threw their brother in a pit. And this caravan of Ishmaelites are passing by. And then um, the other brother named Judah says, you know what? We actually could sell this guy and make some profit. <laughs> and you know what? Let's just do that. And then this is what the brothers decide to do. They took his coat off of him, stripped him of his coat. Say, you know what, we'll just kill an animal, tear up his little jacket, put the blood of an animal, and then we'll go back and show dad and say, some beast killed them. And so what happens? The caravan comes, they sell him. And then they take the thing and they bring it to their father. Destroys their father. After a while, they're trying to calm him down from mourning, and he says... I'm going to be mourning till I die for his son. And this is how chapter 37 ends. And this is the life of a story who... This is the life of a person who, yes, is going to live out with the favor of God over his life who's going to live out with vision and dream. And more than favor not being fair, favor is not necessarily fun. But we got to see the dream to give us the strength to live it out. Amen? Amen. I'm going to end there. Praise God. And so all of us right now, regardless of where you're at, it's possible maybe you just thought of giving up or asking yourself, is this worth it? Maybe not all of us are there, but maybe some of us are. And so I really pray this speaks to that person who's maybe feeling that this journey hasn't been worth it. Today I want to tell you that your story, your story is worth living because whether we see it or not, there's a dream over us, there's a vision over us. Your story is worth being lived. Amen? And you're gonna need that dream to live it. You're gonna, you're gonna need that dream to live it. So I pray as you go into prayer, I pray as you seek God, as you draw near to him, in prayer and, and study and fellowship. Maybe you decided that you wanted to serve in a greater way. Maybe you decided this year that you were gonna give your heart fully to God and you were gonna repent of your sin and turn to God. Maybe that was where your heart was at. I pray in all of our goals, they would lead us to God's dream. 
Dear Father, I thank you so much for this time in your presence with your people, Lord. Father, I pray for everyone's heart in here, Lord. Jesus, we all have goals. We all have resolutions, Lord. I pray whatever they are, may they just lead us towards you, Lord. And I pray in your, in your will and in your sovereignty, Father, that you would reveal dreams and visions that you have for us, Lord. Reveal them that they might bring strength, Lord, and endurance, Lord, and trust in you, Lord. Father, help us to be reassured in that we are all part of a larger history, Lord. And you've always been there. And so we're just part of what you're doing. And we're all part of a dream that's bigger than our own, but yours, Lord. So Father, I thank you, Lord, for every person here that came today, Lord. It's such a joy to see them. Whether they're TDP family or maybe they're just visiting and passing, Father. May your word today, may the wisdom of your word touch their heart in an incredible way, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone right here that doesn't know you or doesn't trust you or maybe has taken time of being apart from you, Lord. Today's a day of salvation, Lord. I know that. So if you're in here, I pray that you would know regardless of where you've been and what you've done, regardless of any heel grabbing, any lies, any moral failures you had, there is a God that's been involved in history. There's a God that has a plan. There's a God that has the power to save us and to wash us from our sins. Today, I want to tell you that you can confess those sins to him. You can be vulnerable to the God who already knows and may you know that he sent his son to die on a cross for those sins because we can't pay for them. We cannot do anything to redeem us from their consequence. But God providing his son in place of us took the penalty and the wage of our sin. And Jesus gave up his life, breathed his last breath on the cross. But the scriptures always also tell us this, that by those stripes we are healed. By his wounds, by the blood that was shed, becomes the covering of our sin. And then we can have peace with God and we can be reconciled with God. So if you're in this room today, I want you to know that if you would believe in Jesus and repent of your sin, you can have peace with God. The scriptures tell us that all of us who come to Christ, there's no condemnation for us, for those, and that in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come from Jacob to Israel. I just encourage you to trust God and to allow him to intervene in your life. Trust him. He has a dream. So Father, I pray also for my brothers and sisters, just give them strength again. Bless them. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.